you for listening to the Park Church Podcast. I hope you enjoy the sermon. Well, I have with me at the moment a mask, a face mask, that has been kindly made by a member of my congregation for myself. I have to say that I'm one of those who did not wear face masks for various reasons, but it's now um, the law in Scotland to wear them when you go into a shop, and so I'm already equipped. I have to say also, it does seem rather strange that four months after the time when the virus was rife in the country, and I remember being in shops and elsewhere, and people mobbed, buying up all their provisions when lockdown seemed to be threatening, and very few people wore masks, and now thankfully, when the rate of infection has declined quite markedly, at least here in Scotland, we're all going to have to wear them. I don't really think that would work very well, so I'm afraid I'm socially distanced. I don't think COVID-19 goes down the internet, and so I'm sure you're quite safe sitting in your own homes, listening to me without a mask on. But the whole experience over these last months, I've said this on a number of occasions, because it is a theme, I think, that God is actually bringing to our attention. The whole thing, COVID-19, not so much even the actual virus, but its impact on people and society, Well, let's be honest, I I think we have to say it is very divisive. Listening to what is said by the scientists, by the medical professions, by the government, and indeed what you observe, then let's put it this way. And I hasten to add, I'm not saying I believe this or accept this, and I'm being a wee bit exaggerating, but let's be honest. If you're old, i.e. over 70, if you're not very fit, i.e. fat, if you come from an ethnic community, well, I'm not saying any more about that, if you have a chronic health condition, um, then if, you, if you're poor, if you come from a, a relatively poor background, then frankly, if you're white, if you're reasonably affluent, if you live out in the leafy suburbs, and as long as you're not a medical professional working in a hospital or care home, then do you get the point? As I say, I'm exaggerating perhaps. But even some correspondence in the church, I don't mean within our own denomination, but the wider church, um, has suggested that certainly if you fall into some of those categories, especially if you're older and you have a health condition, then actually you're better not turning up at church because you're a danger to yourself, but also you could be a danger to others. Very sad, isn't it? Let's hear God's word from the book of Acts. We've been following through the story of the early church and how pertinent it is to our present time. So let's pick up the story from the book of Acts, from Acts chapter 4 and reading from verse 32. Acts chapter 4 and reading from verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no need, no needy person among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. And then let's pick up in verse 12 of chapter 5. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. 
Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Amen. And thanks be to God for his word. As I said, um, I certainly myself would say that COVID-19 has caused, or at least brought to the surface, many of divisions within society. It's also brought to the surface divisions within people themselves within the life of the church. Again, we've mentioned this before. Those who have access to the media, to technology, to the internet, to modern ways of communication, and those who don't. Those who are older and those who are younger. Ways of dealing with things, ways of dealing with perhaps the emotions that have been stirred up by these past months. The ways of dealing with furlough or bringing up children or the care of elderly parents or looking after yourself because you have been told to stay safe and stay at home. All of that and so much more is all there. And I as a pastor, as I look out even in Zoom on a Sunday and see the various faces and everything, know that amongst that gathered people, and, and there's no, I know there's many more who listen to this on YouTube, that amongst that gathering of people, there are great, at best, diversity and certainly the potential for differences and divisions. That's why it's so encouraging and so important that we read at the beginning of this passage of God's Word that all the believers were one in heart and mind. Now, you don't need me to tell you that the story of the church has not been one story of glorious unity. Indeed, the church has continually divided, sometimes over very real and important and doctrinal and biblical issues, and that certainly has been the case but unfortunately often over, let's just say, differences over at best second or even tertiary opinions and sometimes dividing over things which, of course, really are neither here nor there. Because, well, why? Well, this passage tells us why there was unity. Notice what it says. There were one in heart and mind. We already have read in the verses previous that we read last week that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit was at work. And Jesus, if you remember, when he prayed that great high priestly prayer at the end of his life, prayed that there would be unity after speaking to the disciples about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And John's Gospel particularly reminds us that when the Advocate comes, John 15 verse 26, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from me, goes out from the Father rather, he, that is the Holy Spirit, will testify about me. And you also must testify for you have been with me from the beginning. And so Jesus makes it clear that the spirit of truth sent by the Father will come and will enable the disciples, the followers of Jesus, to testify about him. He goes on to say in verse chapter 16 of John's Gospel, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak in his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me, because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. And that's in the same context, the same teaching, when Jesus says this, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And then he goes on to say, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appoint you to go and bear much fruit. So this is my command, that you love each other. And so Jesus and his teachings, disciples made it clear that the Spirit of God was going to come, 
Jesus was going to ask the Father. The Father was going to send the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit came, he was going to make Jesus known to them. And therefore, he was going to enable the people of Jesus to obey his commands. And his first command was to love one another as he loved us. That is the basic to the Christian life, a love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then Jesus goes on in the great high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 to make it clear that his prayer is that in that spirit of love that there would be unity. Here again these words from John 17 and verse 20. My prayer is not for my disciples, for the immediate people who were there with him, the disciples who were going to, going to become the apostles. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that, you, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. And so his great highly high priest prayer is that the disciples, the followers of Jesus, those who would hear the message that the disciples would proclaim that there would be unity. Unity with each other in a spirit of love and respect and care and concern and unity with the Father through the work of the Holy Spirit. And what we see here now back in the book of Acts is a tangible sign that what Jesus spoke about, about the work of the Holy Spirit, about his commands to love each other, and what he prayed about, that they would be one. We see these different threads being fulfilled in the church, the body of Christ in the world today. All the believers were one in heart and mind. And notice it says they were one in heart and mind, both parts in a sense of who we are are united. With our minds, with our acts of will, we might assent to the fact that in Christ we are one with our fellow believers. But we may well feel very different about that believer or this believer because of how we feel about them, or because of what we think about them, or perhaps because of something that was said or done in the past. We might in our minds say, oh yes, we are one in Christ. We might in our minds assent that we're called to love each other, but in our hearts we may be very different in how we feel. But likewise, in our hearts, we may be caught up because of a particular experience, because of a particular gathering, because of particular circumstances, and we feel very loving to one another. We want to be together. We want to express unity in Christ. And that feeling is great. But come Monday morning or Wednesday night or a bad day at work or some other circumstance in the church when we have a difference about what we should do, what colour the wall should be or about the carpet or about the PA system or something else, very quickly our feelings can change and we no longer feel so loving. That's when we need our mind to remind us and to tell us that we are in Christ, that we are to be his commands and that we are one in him. Do you get the point? Mind and heart, our emotions together, united in Christ, enable us to love one another. And that is what was happening in the early church. Look at what it says. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerful at work in them all that there was no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. There was a tangible demonstration of what 
what that unity in Christ meant. It meant, first of all, that people's needs were met. We're told God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person among them. Sometimes some people would say that this story in the book of Acts, the stories around this part of the book of Acts, actually tell us that the church, the Christians, were the first communists in the world. Um, and in a sense, they're right. There is community. Notice what later on in the verses in chapter 5 and verse 12, we're told that in, in verse 12 that all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade and no one else dared join them even though they were highly regarded by the people. What does that mean? Well, it means there was a very strong sense of belonging to each other. There was quite a, a definite distinctiveness about the community of God's people. Their care for each other, their practical ministry to each other, their practical provision and support of each other was so distinctively different from the culture round about that they were regarded as a group that no one of themselves, it says here, <laughs> thought of joining them in the sense that they were just so different from where most people were at. The church was so different from where the culture round about was at. And, and in that spirit of community, there was that practical care and provision. Indeed, that fulfills Paul's words in the book of Galatians. Paul, in Galatians 6 and verse 10, calls us to particularly do good to all people, but especially to the household of faith. That's not to say we shouldn't care and have a concern for other people. Of course we should. But our first calling is to have a demonstrated care and love for one another, as Jesus commanded us. And interesting, in this practical demonstration, someone is mentioned, Joseph, we're told, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. This is the first mention of Barnabas in the book of Acts, and yet we know from the story of the book of Acts, he goes on to be a great contemporary of the apostle Paul, he goes on to be well known in the life of the church, maybe not an apostle in the way that Paul became, or that Peter and John were, but certainly up there amongst them. And notice the name he's given, son of encouragement. He was somebody who probably was quite wealthy. He was a Levite. He had a position within the Jewish faith. He was from Cyprus. He was not one who lived in Israel, but he had been brought to the land of Israel for whatever reason, perhaps as a, as a worship of God. He had gathered to, and, and at the season of Passover and Pentecost. He had witnessed perhaps the death and the resurrection of Jesus and certainly had witnessed the apostles or the disciples being transformed into apostles on the day of Pentecost. And he had become a believer. And as a sign of believer, he sold a field. He brought the money and he offered himself. A sign of God's converting and restoring work in his life was in generosity. It's often said that a sign of really what impact God's grace has on us is how easily we dig into our pocket, how willingly we open up our wallets or our purses, how generous we are in the use of our time, our talents and our money. That is a tangible sign of God's grace being set free and released in our lives. And Joseph, who the apostles called Barnabas, is mentioned here as an example of that. But alongside that unity, causing that practical care and, and, and support for each other, there's also a power released in evangelism. We're told in verse 33 that with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. In verse 12 of chapter 5, we're told the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. 
And we go on to say that nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord, were added to the number, and as a result, people brought the sick to the streets and laid them in beds. And we're told in verse 16 that crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Interestingly, and perhaps unfortunately, one of the divisions that exist within the church today, as it has for many generations, is over our understanding about these signs and wonders. There is a whole part of the church, and, and in a sense our tradition would be part of that church, the side of the church, which would say that these signs and wonders were particularly for the apostolic period, for the book of Acts. Jesus had told the disciples that they would go and do greater things, again in John's Gospel. Jesus preparing the disciples, telling them the Spirit would come, and telling them that they would go and do even greater things that he had done. And these signs and wonders were a demonstration that the disciples were the apostles upon which Jesus was building his church. There was an apostolic confirmation of their calling to be, in a sense, the bedrock of the church of God. But now these signs and wonders aren't to be expected. They aren't to be a, a tangible demonstration of the church's life. Of course, there's the other side of the coin in the life of the church today, which says, no, they are to be a sign of the church. They are to be a demonstration of God's power at work. Here they are in the book of Acts. The Spirit is at work. They're the body of Jesus. And so as Jesus went about healing and bringing help and hope to those who were in need, so the church is called to do that and to do that with signs and wonders. There are these two positions and various extreme viewpoints in both these positions. Let's say in the middle, what does it tell us? Well, it tells us yet again, that God's gospel makes an impact. Lives are changed. Hope is given. There is a, a tangible sign of the dead and dead who are spiritually dead becoming alive in Christ. Emotions healed. Your attitudes of mind, your ways of seeing and being and living. There has to be, however, Whatever, in a sense, angle one takes on both sides of the argument about signs and wonders, there surely must be a central ground where we can all agree that where the gospel is released, lives are changed. And it makes an impact. We're told that crowds gathered from the towns around Jerusalem. There is a ripple effect as the power of the gospel released in the life of the church of God begins to make an impact on the immediate community and out into our nation. And how vital that is needed today. People are sceptical of talk. People are wary of institutions. Many people can't even begin to understand what it would be like to go into a building because it's completely alien to their culture or background. There are so many differences, so many divisions that separate the church in many ways from ordinary life and from the people of our country. We need to be seen to be real people living with a real God that brings radical difference to real lives. And that's why as we close this little story, or really quite a long story, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Let me read it to you. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought it the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? 
What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and I got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. And Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the Spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. And this is a vital story. It might be one we'd be tempted. A lot easier for me to finish my sermon a couple of minutes ago and not to read this. But it's a vital story in the midst of the story of the church's unity. What is the issue at stake? Ananias and Sapphira, a couple in the church, after all, they sold the property, it belonged to them, and they gave the money. But the point is, as you read the story, it's very clear that they sold the money for X, they got the money, but then they said to the church, here's the money we got for the selling of the land, but actually the amount that they gave over to the church was X minus Y. They kept back some of the money. But the point is not that they didn't keep the money back. They could have done that, but they weren't honest about it. Why, Ananias, how is it that the Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied just to human beings, but to God. Ananias and Sapphira had fallen into the trap that we can so easily fall into, of pretense, of appearing to be something that we're not, of appearing to be more generous than we actually are. They could have kept back the money. They could have said, we sold the money for X, but we're actually keeping some aside because we've got some things we need to do. Here's the rest of it. And that would have been accepted. But they didn't. They pretended. They put on this air of spirituality, of generosity, of graciousness, of godliness, which was not actually backed up by who they really were in their hearts. We're often told that times of crisis can reveal the metal within a man or indeed within a woman. We've been through a time of crisis. The church is going to go on into crisis in many ways over these coming weeks and months as we try to work out what it is to be the church post-COVID, perhaps only for a short time before a second wave of the virus returns. Who knows? God alone knows. It's challenging times. And these times of crisis can be used by, by God for good. All things do work together for good with those who love God and are called according to his purpose. The story of the Bible is how God wants to refine and renew and transform his people to strip away pretense, to, to reveal the real metal of a man or a woman in order that it might be refined and become more glorious in his service. Ananias and Sapphire were people of pretense and they were judged and God is wanting to challenge the church particularly in the west particularly in our own country how much really are what really in a sense is at the core of our being how much has been pretense an outward spirituality an outward conformity an outward sign of faith when actually in our hearts we've been filled with deception with sin with fear 
with a whole host of things. And God wants to use these times of challenge to bring all of that out. Thankfully, he doesn't strike us down today in the way that Ananias and Sapphira were struck, struck down. But let's not ignore the fact that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He will not be mocked. He will not be tricked. He will not have the wool pulled over his eyes. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God that comes to live within us, knows really what's going on in here. And he may well use times of crisis, as we are going through just now, to really reveal what is at our heart and in our hearts. This is a glorious story of a church fulfilling the commands of Jesus, of being one in heart and mind, of demonstrating that in a spirit of generosity and care, and of being powerful in preaching the gospel that led to lives being changed. But it's also a story that's a warning, a warning that in today we need to take heart and respond to. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we hear your word to us and we are reminded of its challenge, of its encouragement, of its example, and of its warning. And so we ask, O Holy Spirit, that you will take your word and by the same Spirit of God which brought Jesus Christ from the dead, the same Spirit that, Lord Jesus, you said you would go and ask the Father and the Father would send the same Spirit that comes to lead us into all the truth by taking from you and making it known to us, the same Spirit that enables us to fulfill your commands to love one another, the same Spirit that was within the apostles and of the church in the book of Acts, that by that same Holy Spirit you would draw us in unity to you, in fellowship with one another, and in faithfulness to your commands. As we offer ourselves afresh to you, O God, in this day and in this generation, for your glory and for your name's sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Park Church Podcast. I hope you enjoy the sermon.